So we continue in the opening chapter of Genesis this morning, considering day four, day five, and part of day six. We begin at verse 14 and continue through verse 25. This is God's word to his people. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said that the land produced living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Remember that in days one through three, God gives structure to the earth. Now notice in days four through six, God furnishes its structure. As to the fourth day, shine, Jesus shine. The furnishing of day four follows the structuring of day one. The parallels are quite obvious with the language regarding darkness and light. But instead of focusing on that parallel, I would have us focus on the purpose that the sun the moon and the stars serve for us, and how that purpose should speak to our own. First and most obviously, the luminaries in the sky are to be lights. They are to shine in the darkness in such a way as to bring illumination for humanity and to mark the sacred times. Think about the last time you admired a beautiful sunrise or sunset. Or think about the last time you were outside on a clear night and the moon was so bright that it provided light for your way. Or think about when you were beyond the city lights only to see thousands upon thousands of stars in the splendor of the night sky. Sir James Jeans tells us that there are more stars in space than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the world. It is no wonder then 
that humanity has made gods and idols of the astral bodies for centuries. They are remarkable to behold, but they simply reflect the glory of our God. Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And do you notice that God simply gives five words to the formation of the stars? The end of verse 16 says, He made the stars also. What a profound perspective of truth that is for us. The Holy Scripture eventually will take around 50 chapters to discuss the construction and the significance of the tabernacle, a temporary sanctuary for God's people, but it only gives five words to the formation of the stars. The Bible, you see, considers things differently from how we might naturally consider them. And once again, it is because the Bible is a handbook of redemption. John Phillips says, it was nothing for God to create. To create, he had only to speak. But to redeem, he had to suffer. And therein is the unique perspective of Scripture. God is more interested in people than he is in planets. He is more interested in our souls than he is in stars. And so should we be. Secondly, these luminaries in the sky are to serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Now, we tend to say that these lights mark the seasons of winter, spring, summer, and fall, and they certainly do. But they should primarily draw our attention to the presence of God and the worship that is due Him. Ultimately, for the church, the luminaries should draw our attention to the movement from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Remember how the Israelite calendar was initially moon-based, that the Hebrew day begins and ends at dusk. Consequently, each of the Jewish feast observances would begin and end at sundown. Symbolically, this means that the Old Covenant took place at night. These feast days, these sacred times, all pointed to the Messiah. So they, like all of the law, find their fulfillment in Christ. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to festival, or new moon, or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The old lunar order is thus replaced by Jesus, who we learn in John 8 and verse 12 is the light of the world. The new covenant, which Jesus ushers in through his resurrection, is marked not by the moon, but by the rising sun. 
This aligns with the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. There are two sides of the proverbial coin here. One side is to remain in our idolatry and our sin. It is to remain under law and judgment. That is darkness. Take, for instance, how the Egyptians declared as its primary deity, Amon-Ra, which supposedly brought sun, light, and creation each day to the entire world. In what way did the living God combat this idolatry? Yahweh brought pitch black darkness upon the land of Egypt for three days. And of course, the judgment of remaining in the dark is death, as the tenth plague on Egypt would reveal. Do not remain in darkness. Choose instead the other side of the coin. Choose to cover your doorpost with the blood from the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. He is the one after all who entered into darkness for three days in order to shine the new resurrection life for you. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 prophesied that the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Shine, Jesus, shine. And if the glory of Jesus shines in our hearts, have you ever stopped to consider how we are actually luminaries upon the earth? The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that we are to shine like the stars in the sky amid a warped and crooked generation. Might you and I shine like this Twitter feed that I want you to see now. I love this so much. Matthew 5, 14 to 16, another passage that's especially well suited for our church perched upon Winstanley Hill. Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Shine, Jesus, shine through your people today. As to the fifth day, Jesus makes all things new. To begin with, day five of creation is essentially about the filling of the earth with fish and birds. The basic command that comes here and with the animals to follow on day six is for living things to each reproduce after its kind. That expression occurs a total of 10 times in Genesis chapter 1, and it is yet another way that evolutionary theory is disproven. You see, there may be mutations and changes within any given kind, but no kind, no kind, as hard as scientists may have tried to make it so, has ever changed completely into another. And that truth runs consistent with God's decree in the beginning. We could spend more time refuting evolution from this text, but refuting evolution is not where I wish to place our focus this morning. Rather, I prefer to draw out the redemptive connection that's found between this fifth creation day and our lives. Once again, after all, the Bible is a handbook of redemption. Well, I realize that it's on the third day that the first types of vegetation are made. The fifth day provides the first direct reference to the fish of the waters and the birds of the air as being living creatures. Well, I do understand how some might shoot back at me and say, well, plants are living things, but vegetation does not reflect consciousness. Vegetation does not literally breathe, but the fish and the birds both represent conscious life that has been brought forth by the command of God. And it is because fish and birds are conscious life that we first hear a divine word of blessing. At verse 22, God blessed this part of his creation saying, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. This is the first blessing in the history of the world and is related to a filling as well as to a fruitfulness this, by the way, is a theme of God's redemptive purposes throughout his word. Think about this. By our faith in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit for what purpose? To become fruitful by proclaiming and living out the redemptive thrust of the gospel. The language related to the teams are the swarms of sea creatures and the teams are the swarms of flying creatures should further provide a picture for us of an abundance throughout the earth. Perhaps we might say as far and as wide as we can see throughout the world. 
In light of Genesis 1.21, this swarming and spreading, God said, was good. Only following the disruption caused by sin, we learn from Leviticus chapter 11 that dietary laws would go into effect within Israel. Here we have some things that the Lord initially made and declared as good being set apart in some ways where his people, the Jews, could not eat. A clear separation has been introduced. And again, this represents the old covenant. But in the new covenant, the new covenant through Christ, what do we learn? There is a clear restoration that takes place, a form of recovery, if you will, for the fallen world. Fast forward to the book of Acts in chapter 10 with Peter's vision on the rooftop of the Gentile Cornelius' home. In that text, you might remember how a great sheet is let down with all kinds of different animals. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Of course, Peter refuses he says that he's never eaten anything common, anything unclean. And the voice then replies, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this exchange takes place three times. Church, Jesus makes all things new. He restores things to how they are supposed to be. Whereas sin brings disruption, sin brings division. When sin is dealt with once and for all through Christ's sacrifice on the hill that he created, the rest of creation can be restored to its divine purpose. And the point is this. What God declares as clean, let no one declare as unclean. And everything and everyone that Christ came to restore is made clean. Has Jesus made you clean? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? If so, as we are filled with the Spirit of God and as we are subsequently made fruitful through the spreading of the gospel, consider the swarms that will one day gather around the throne of our God. Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Do you see the swarms that will be gathered who have been washed in the blood of our Lord? As to the sixth day, Jesus brings peace upon the new earth. I am prone to tell children to never be afraid to ask me questions. Well, I, 
will tell you that might not be the wisest thing for me to say because, to be honest, children ask the hardest of questions. One question that children frequently have asked me over the years is, will there be dinosaurs in heaven? And I, I don't actually explain to children that we are actually awaiting a new earth upon which we will dwell, but I simply say, yes, I believe there will be dinosaurs in heaven. Aquatic dinosaurs, aerial dinosaurs, land dinosaurs. In Job chapter 39, God takes Job through a various list of animals from his creation. And then the Lord interjects a word about his justice and about his might in chapter 40. It, it highlights his might in verses 1 through 14. And then the Lord goes on to conclude that 40th chapter by referencing the behemoth in verses 15 to 24. What is a behemoth? The dictionary defines it as a huge, monstrous creature like the brontosaurus. Now, the notes in your Bible, however, might say it's a hippopotamus. And, and, and part of the description does align with the hippo, but part of the description points to something else. At verse 17, we read, it's tail sways like a cedar. Now, I've been to the zoo, and I don't think a hippo's tail is like a tree. At verses 18 and 19, we read, its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God, for its maker can approach it with his sword. This beast is a formidable one. In fact, only the Lord can bring a sword near to it. Man can't really do anything to this beast, but plenty of hippos have been killed by men. So the animal being described has to be something more, well, behemoth-like. I imagine that it's a dinosaur. And as insurmountable as they would have been, they would have been created to live peaceably on the earth. Bob and Liz Rizlon were just in Glen Rose, Texas, near the Paluxy River Basin. And, you know, I have read that fossilized tracks of men and dinosaurs apparently appear there, but Bob texted me this. Not so sure about that claim may have been a misinterpretation, but it doesn't change anything in my mind. Dinosaurs and humans existed together. He's got some pretty cool pictures, by the way. Dinosaurs and man walking together on the earth means the time framework proposed by evolutionists is yet again terribly wrong. According to that proposal, there should be at least 60 million years between the last of dinosaurs and the first of man. That's definitely not the case. How glorious dinosaurs must have been. 
And I believe they will be glorious yet again when Christ makes all things new. Yet with sin, in the same way as with other members of the animal kingdom, they likely became violent. They likely became at odds with other parts of the world, in the sea, on the land, in the air. So what destroyed these mighty beasts? The flood and its aftermath. Now, not, not to get ahead of ourselves, but God doesn't tell Noah to bring every animal upon the ark. That's a misnomer. No, he says in chapter 6 and verse 20 for Noah to bring two of every kind of bird, two of every kind of animal. Now, whether you agree or disagree with my assessment concerning dinosaurs, and perhaps, perhaps Chuck, you don't even care. What we can say with absolute certainty is that the original creation was a peaceable kingdom, even among behemoths. Others among the animals bore the characterization as wild, creatures like lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, you're welcome. While other animals we would characterize as domesticated, such as livestock. The point is that none of these animals would have initially been feared. It was only after humanity sinned that violence entered among the animal kingdom. Consider how an animal, as well as a man, soon came under the penalty of capital punishment. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 28, we read, If a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. See, I mean, animals became perhaps violent, and there's consequence to the violence. But when Christ brings forth a new heaven and a new earth, there will be no more violence among the human or the animal kingdom. In Genesis 9, verse 9, God covenants to make all things new on the earth. He will bring forth peace again throughout the created world. Isaiah 11, verse 6 and through 8 says it like this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Now, I, I think it's going to look like this. Yet another Twitter feed. It's kind of cute. Hey, come on, y'all. Can I get an awe from somebody? Aww. Thank you. Now, 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 clearly, that image that I just showed is not the same as a wolf 
and a lamb. It's not the same as a calf and a lion. It's not the same as a dinosaur and a man. I get it. But it's not the same because the puppy and the piglet and the duckling, they are all what we might classify as domesticated animals. Yet that's not what Isaiah is prophesying about, is it? He's prophesying about a time when the wild beast will snuggle up with the domesticated beast and there will be no threat. He's talking about a time when even the little child will rule over a beast as fierce as a lion, as deadly as a serpent, and not be afraid. And don't you see, can't you see, this is what the second Adam, the Son of God, does in the recreated order. He will bring about a full-on transformation, a full-on consummation of the original purposes of creation. There will be no more depression. Amen. There will be no more sin. There will be no more violence. There will be no more war. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more orphans who are looking to celebrate their three-year anniversary home. Because Jesus Christ comes to make all things new. And I don't know about you, but that's what I look forward to. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And well, also for fish and birds and animals and dinosaurs. Far more crucial than all of that. Peace with God. We shall be made at peace with the Lord. Because why? Jesus makes all things new. Pray with me. Lord, where we are distressed, where we are disenfranchised, where we are disrupted, discouraged, defeated, where we are hurting, where we are lost, where we are wayward, where we are struggling. Lord, where we are afraid, where we feel like at times we're in the darkness, Shine, Jesus, shine. Bring your light upon your people. Encourage today. Enlighten today. Equip today. Send us out today. That people would see your light through us. Make us, I pray, a beacon 
Make us, I pray, a people who strive to see your kingdom come one day at a time through the lives that we live, through the faith that we show, through the love that we give. I pray, Jesus, this in your name for your people today. Make it so. Amen.